Well, may I add my warm welcome to Barclay. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really fantastic to see you. If you're one of our regulars here or if you're a visitor, particularly welcome to your students if you're visiting here off the back of events week. It's really lovely to see you all. And by the way, at the end of the service, there's going to be a student lunch here. So please do stick around. We'd love to get to know you a lot better. Uh, but for now, we're going to be listening to God's word. And so if you've got a Bible on a device or a paper Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that we do have the words of eternal life. Please help me now as I, as I preach. We ask, Lord God, that the Lord Jesus would shine through the pages of Scripture this morning. May we see you as the King of Kings, the King of this world, and our King too. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if any of you can tell me what is happening tomorrow on the 20th of February. Children, do you know any particular event that's happening in the world tomorrow? Well, if you're from the United States of America, then you will know that the third Monday of the month in February is President's Day. Um, And so it's the birthday of George Washington, the first president of America. And historically, it's been an event of raucous celebration and great rejoicing. But in more recent years, it's become more of a time of protesting. And those who do protest, they kind of rename it as not my president's day. Now, there may be many great things about living in a democracy like we do here. And we should thank God for them. But one thing democracy can do is to make us think that we should make the decision on who is in charge. And if we don't like it, then we can reject their leadership over us. Before the last uh, US election, in one of those Not My President's Day protests, uh, some rival Trump supporters, they showed up as they do, and they basically said, look, he is our president. He was elected. If you don't like it, If you don't like what's going on, then go ahead and move somewhere else. Why was the president elected? Because we chose him to be elected. And if you don't like it, then go somewhere else. No doubt similar things might be said whenever we have the next general election here. It's hard to tell when that's going to happen, but no doubt things will happen. What happened last time, there were comments saying, I didn't vote for him. I didn't choose him to be my prime minister. He's not my leader. As a culture, it's fair to say, we, get, we think that we should have a right to say in who is in charge. We do this in politics, don't we? When we vote for somebody else, uh, people do it in the workplace as they move jobs to escape a boss that they don't like. Shareholders do it as well when they vote down the company boards. And sports players, they do it as well as they undermine their manager and get them sacked. But because we have a say in who's in charge in some areas, it's easier for us to think that the same applies to the things of God. And so maybe you're here and you would call yourself a Christian, and maybe you go to one church and you you like what the speaker says, and so you stay there, or you don't like what the speaker says, and so you move to a different church. 
Uh, perhaps you were born from another religious background and you think it's right, you think it's good, and so you stick with it. Or you don't agree with it and so you move on to another one. Or perhaps you wouldn't call yourself uh, religious at all. Maybe you grew up without really any particular kind of belief. And you like choosing who you listen to, who you read about. And you like to choose who you don't listen to and who you don't read about. But in this morning's passage, Mark wants to show us that when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to Jesus Christ, things are not like any of those other areas of life. Or as I put it on your sheets, point one, Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes. This is how generally leadership works, isn't it, in our world? You know, whether it's Rishi Sunak or Keir Starman in the UK, whether it is Biden, Trump or another candidate in the US, whether it's our school governing boards or wherever it happens to be, you know, this is how leadership generally works, right? People, they're looking for your support and so they want your votes and so on. They stick those um, awkward leaflets through the door and they knock on the door and they stand awkwardly at the front, don't they, asking for your support and all that good stuff. But Jesus' leadership here isn't like that. He is a leader, but he doesn't ask for anyone's permission. He doesn't wait until he's got some sort of mandate. He just gets on and takes charge. Have a look down at verse 1 with me of Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and then Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And so... Jesus here, he might have you know, had some kind of supernatural knowledge about this donkey in this village, or he may have found out by some other means. But that isn't the point. The big thing here is how simply Jesus claims this animal for his use. And so before, uh, before my wife uh, Sophie owned her own car, she would generally be borrowing cars from her friends or from her family. She would be checking well in advance to make sure it was okay for her to borrow the car. And nearer the time, she would say, is it still okay if I can borrow your car for whatever it was going to be? And they'd say yes, and then they'd lend the car to her. It's quite a common uh, thing that happens to all of us, isn't it? But in the ancient world, kings didn't wait to be invited. They just showed up, they told you what they needed, and you gave it to them. That's how it worked. And the way Jesus claims this cult, this donkey, this young donkey, it's almost as much as a sign of his authority that he has, as even the way that he rides it later on. Glance down at verse 3 with me. Verse 3, if anyone asks you why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it. And so Jesus here, he isn't asking for anybody's votes, as it were. He isn't doing fundraising dinners to support his campaign. He isn't ringing up supporters to ask for pledges. He's not doing those Twitter polls or those TikTok videos uh, asking for people's support and all that things. He just simply sends people out to get what he wants, to get what he needs. And of course, verse 3, if you look on, there is... You know, he's the very best kind of king. You know, he, look at how verse 3 goes on. He says, he'll send it back shortly, or in other translations, he'll send it back immediately. He'll look after the animal, make sure it's returned. 
There's no doubt that he's in charge here. Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes. And sure enough, as he said, verse 4 goes on to say, they went and found a colt outside in the street. They tied, uh, tied to the doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, why are you doing this? What are you doing? Untying this colt. And they answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And then Mark takes us from Jesus' you know, private claim of authority here to a, a very public one. Can you see how the scene shifts in the passage? So here they are, they are approaching Jerusalem, the capital. It's the week or so just before Passover, a huge Jewish festival with thousands upon thousands of people traveling from all over the country to Jerusalem. And so, you know, if Jesus had wanted to just slip in quietly unnoticed, then he really could have done it in quite easily. But instead, he makes this huge public statement, doesn't he? Often the fact, often people think the fact that Jesus is riding on a donkey is often taken as a sign of his humility. But I'm not sure if that's really the case here. Just picture the scene, okay? In those days, everyone, unless you were super duper important, you had to walk everywhere. And so just picture this huge crowd of thousands upon thousands of people probably uh, they're walking along the road, streaming into the city, and then in the middle, there's this guy, right? There's this one guy sat on this donkey, just a little bit higher than anybody else within the crowd, watching everyone else around him walk alongside him. And so Jesus, he wants to be noticed here. He wants to make a statement about who he is and that he is in charge. And nowhere else in the Gospels do... Does he ever ride anything else, we're told? But in this moment, sitting on this donkey is a claim to status. Because what's more in their minds, if you think about it, there's probably nothing less good about a donkey, okay? You know, they would have used horses for battle, wouldn't they? We heard that in our Old Testament reading in Zechariah. They used horses for battles, but donkeys were used for peacetime, weren't they? And so back in the Old Testament, even great King Solomon, at the high point, the golden age of Israel's history, when he was anointed king, he enters Jerusalem on David, his father's donkey. So this donkey in Mark chapter 11, rather than thinking of it like a lesser animal, think of it more like a limo than a humvee. One's for peace, the other one is for war but they are both used for very important statements, aren't they? Jesus isn't taking particular humility here in his choice of transport, is he? He's aiming to be noticed. He's making a big statement. He's claiming authority. Because, point one, Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes. He just assumes he's in charge. And this statement, it actually gets bigger and bigger if you look down at verse 7. Verse 7, they bring the donkey and they throw cloaks on it and then he sat on it. And then remember, it's a donkey that we've heard before that no one has ever ridden. And so no one has sat on it before. So throwing cloaks over it, you can understand that, can't you? But now if you have a look at verse 8, you see many people, they spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. I mean, just think about that. 
you know, you might lend someone, you might lend someone your coat or your jumper if they were cold or if they were sat on some kind of hard, uncomfortable floor. Um, you might let them sit on it or lean on it or you might let them wear it if they were cold. But let me ask you this. Would you honestly take your best coat, take it off and lie it in the middle of the road for someone to walk over? And not even for a person, but for an animal to trample over. Would you do that? How important would you have to think someone was in order to do that for them? I think we sometimes think of this, you know, a bit like one of our red carpet traditions that we have, you know, with the Oscars and stuff like that. You know, they roll out this big red carpet for all these celebrities to walk all over. And I'm just not sure this is what's happening here. Because red carpets, they were made specifically for these famous people to walk on. But here, this is people taking off their cloaks and letting a donkey trample all over them. This is like the state visit of Buckingham Palace. And the presidential limo, you know, it arrives, it pulls around the corner, and all the soldiers in their right, you know, their bright red jackets, they take them off, and they lie them in the middle of the road for the tyres to cruise over. This is an extreme statement. Jesus is in charge. He isn't asking for anyone's votes. He assumes he's in charge because he is king of kings. And, you know, it's if claiming someone's donkey and then riding it through a crowd of people walking as they lay their cloaks on the ground for you to trample over, as if all this wasn't a big enough statement to say, I am the centre of attention here. Now look at verse 9. Look down at verse 9 with me. Those who went ahead... And those who followed, they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Now, verse 9 is a quote from Psalm 118. And in that psalm, the Lord is God's name, Yahweh. So, Jesus, you know, he isn't another human politician trying to make his mark. He's here on God's business. When you come in someone's name, you represent them, don't you? You are coming in their business. You're claiming status in their sense for them. So that work event that you attend to for your company, whether you like it or not, you are representing the company on their behalf. When the government sends diplomats abroad, they go in the government's name. And so when Jesus rides up here in Jerusalem, he is here on God's business. There is no bigger stamp of authority, no greater power to represent than coming in the name of the Lord. And verse 10, it expands verse 9. Verse 10, because the one in verse 9 coming in the name of the Lord is the one, verse 10, bringing in the kingdom of David. Which picks up what we saw last week. If you remember, just glance back at chapter 10, verse 47 of Mark's Gospel. Remember, in the end of part of chapter 10, um, there's a guy called Blind Bartimaeus, and he cries out, verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Again, verse 48, son of David. Now, David may not mean that much to us here in 21st century Loughborough, but to those Jewish people back then, David is the greatest leader in their history. 
And his kingdom is the glory days that they always look back to and they always want to have back again. And now he arrives into Jerusalem on this donkey, just like Solomon, David's son, did back all those centuries ago, is the man, the greater son of David, who is going to take them back to that age again. So Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes. He's already the king. He's already in charge. He comes in the name of the Lord. But that's not all. Because as always, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, as verse 9 does, there's always much more to it than that, than we think. So, may I invite you, if you can, turn to Psalm 118 in the Old Testament, and let's see this a bit more for ourselves. Psalm 118, it's a psalm, it's a song of national celebration. Psalm 118 Look down at verse 2 of Psalm 118. Verse 2 says, Let Israel say. So, you know, here's the whole nation gathered, Israel. Let Israel say, His love, God's love, endures forever. Then from the whole nation of Israel singing, it moves down, if you look at verse 5, to one person. Psalm 118, verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. And now if you jump down to verse 10, and you will see what this distress was about. All the nations surrounding me. And again, verse 11, all the nations surrounding me. But again, verse 11, it continues. If you look, Psalm 118, verse 11. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. So what we have here in Psalm 118 is the whole nation of Israel gathered and here is the king leading the nation. He's been opposed by the world. All the nations of the world have been opposing him and have been against him and his people. But now he leads them in celebration, victorious over their enemies. And they're returning to Jerusalem as well. Again, look at verse 19 of the psalm where they're approaching Jerusalem. Verse 19, Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. So you've got here this victorious leader of God's people approaching Jerusalem. And now verse 26 of the psalm, here's what the people then cry out. The words that we saw in Mark chapter 11. Psalm 118 verse 26 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The house here is simply talking about the temple, the place that would have been in Jerusalem. But just think about Mark 11, and let's turn back to Mark 11 actually. If you look at it closely, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're not picking this line randomly because it so happens to be what they were thinking about in their heads as they walked along the road. This line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it is deliberate because it fits so perfectly. Because as Jesus approaches Jerusalem as the king of kings, as, as David's greater king, riding on this donkey, they are thinking, hang on a minute... Hang on, we know a song about God's king approaching Jerusalem in triumph. 
This is the reality that this song that we've been singing all these years is pointing to. So come on, let's sing it now. Let's shout it. Because here is God's greatest king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So point one, Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes. He's not asking for anyone's vote to get elected. He is the king. He assumes he's in charge. And the crowds, they really get it, don't they? They get this isn't some kind of election campaign. This isn't a political rally to whip up popular support to try and give him some kind of legitimacy. Here is God's king claiming his throne. But unlike the royal weddings and processions and spectacles that we're used to watching on TV these days, this isn't a statement that we can simply sit back, relax and passively enjoy. Because while Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes, point two on your sheets, but as king, Jesus makes everyone take sides. Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes, but as king, as God's king, Jesus makes everyone take sides. When the US president, uh, when they, they come to London, they're always, uh, there's always some kind of article somewhere regarding the presidential car. Uh, we got that during Obama and Trump and now Biden. And you might find such articles interesting if you're into cars. The president's car apparently costs around $1.5 million. Um, it's got bulletproof glass around 30 centimetres thick. It's got its own oxygen supply. It's got a tear gas cannon, apparently. It's got night vision, and it can even fire smoke screens to help him escape. I mean, it sounds like rather one of those James Bond cars, doesn't it? But it's a pretty special car if you're into cars. But when the president comes to visit London, it's only an interesting sideline, isn't it? So when he visits, the car might get a feature, but it doesn't dominate. Now, let me borrow your imagination for a moment. Just imagine, right, you were to turn on your news, uh, on your TV or on your phone, and the headlines say, President visits. But instead of shots of handshakes or a state dinner or high-level cabinet talks, what we get is footage of the driver walking to the car and getting it and collecting it, and then footage of the driver waiting outside by the back door, waiting for the president to emerge. And then maybe we get some footage of him actually driving the president. And then when we get to the press conference later on, uh, towards the end of the trip, there are no questions about global affairs or diplomatic leaks. All the questions are about the car. Where did you pick it up from? Have you ridden it before? What's it like? Can I have a go? You'd think that either the news editor that day was having a laugh or was weirdly obsessed with cars. But if you turn back to Mark, Mark chapter 11, that is sort of what he does. Mark 11, look, look at it closely. Here is God's king. He's coming into Jerusalem, coming to the capital, making a massive statement of who he is and that he's in charge, showing the world that he isn't asking for votes. He's already God's king and in charge. But Mark's coverage here mainly focuses on the donkey. 
Verse 11 is kind of about, you know, inside Jerusalem. We'll get to there in a bit. But before then, we have ten verses before that of the actual journey and the approach. And the first six verses, they're all about the donkey. And this is what you, this is how you go and collect the vehicle. These are where, this is where it's parked. Here are the passwords and so on. And verse 7, if you look, that's mainly about the decor, isn't it? With all the cloaks and stuff and, you know, and all that good stuff. But it's only when we get to verses 8, 9 and 10 that we get to hear about anything else. But Mark isn't being weird here. He's doing it because in this passage, he's not just making a connection back to Psalm 118 by quoting it, but he's also making a connection to that huge prophecy that we heard read to us earlier in Zechariah chapter 9, which is also in the Old Testament. So, if you've got your Bibles, can you turn back to Zechariah chapter 9? The page numbers are on your sheets. And let's have a little look at this huge prophecy of what it means. I guess as, the, as Zechariah and Mark 11 were being read side by side, you may have already spotted some of the connections. But have a look at Zechariah chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. You see, it's, it, it's the right place. Um, it's Jerusalem, also called Zion. It's the right noise. There is shouting and rejoicing. But now the middle of verse 9. See, your king comes to you. Your king is coming. Remember that they shouted in Mark 11, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom. Remember how Mark began his book as well. If you've been with us during our series in Mark's Gospel, it starts saying the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's King. So this isn't just some kind of random noisy day in Jerusalem. This is the day that the King comes. Now look at the end of Zechariah 9 verse 9 and notice the key detail that Mark gives six to seven verses to to ensure that we didn't miss it. End of verse 9 of Zechariah 9, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, point one, Jesus isn't asking for anyone's votes. He comes as the king. And he is, don't get me wrong, a humble king. That's absolutely right. That's what we read of him. End of verse 9, lowly, humble, and on a donkey. But as we've seen in Mark's Gospel, if you've been here, humility or lowliness, it doesn't come from riding a particular animal, does it? I mean, that would be quite a shallow humility, a kind of token gesture that we don't really like. No, Jesus is the humble king because, as we saw back in chapter 10, that he came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he's the humble king. But Mark makes us think of Zechariah chapter 9 because he wants to show us, point two on your sheets, that he is king and as king, Jesus makes us, everyone, all the people walking past outside, all the people driving cars outside, he makes everyone take sides, whether we realise it or not. Because in Zechariah 9, this king is a seriously divisive figure. Did you get that? It was being read to us earlier. Because on the one hand, he's bringing an epic salvation. Back in verse 9, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. 
middle of verse 10, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He is this global king who will bring global peace. Now verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the, from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. He's, he's a king who gives freedom for prisoners. He restores everything that people have lost. Now jump down to verse 16. The Lord, their God, will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his hand like jewels in a crown. And end of verse 17. Grain will make the young men thrive and and new wine the young women. And so this king, he's going to bring awesome prosperity and flourishing And when you see that, do you see why the crowds in Mark 11 are shouting aloud when they understand who this king is? This salvation here is the kingdom that the king is bringing. So that's one hand of this king described in Zechariah 9. But that's not all that Zechariah says about the king, is it? Just go back to verse 10 and have a look at this. It says, verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battles and, and the battle bow will be broken. So there can only be, uh, there can only be this global peace, this epic salvation because all things that bring war will be destroyed. But the thing is, The things that bring war and trouble aren't just horses and bows, are they? They're also the people who use them. God's enemies. Glance at verse 13 of Zechariah 9. Verse 13, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. God is going to bring this epic salvation and this amazing peace by defeating his enemies. He mentions Greece here uh, just because that would represent God's enemies during the time of Zechariah. And then look down at verse 14. It gives a terrifying image, doesn't it, of God and what he's going to do in battle. Verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And so this king, this king brings both an epic salvation for his people, but also total destruction for his enemies. And so turn back one more time, one more time to Mark chapter 11, because Having seen Zechariah 9 and this king, it makes sense now, doesn't it, why we get verse 11 after verse 10 in Mark 11. I mean, I don't know if when verse 11 was being read out, if you felt like a bit, this is a bit of an anticlimax, a bit of a weird place to finish this passage. I mean, just look at it. We've had 10 verses describing the most dramatic entry you could ever imagine to any city. And then verse 11... Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around and everything. But since it was already lit, 
He went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? It's a bit of a weird way to finish this passage, isn't it? But that is because, my friends, that is because Jesus doesn't just come to gather the crowds who are following him and joining him along the way, as we'll see next week in the next passage. He also comes to look and not and not to come and see things like some kind of tourist, but to see how people are responding to him as the king. God has set up over the world this king, and that's why Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He wants to observe, he wants to see, are people responding to God's appointed king? He's come to see whether the people in this city, in Jerusalem, in this world, in this town of Loughborough, in our world, are they treating him, Jesus, as the King of Kings? He saw Jerusalem then, and he still sees this world, including Loughborough, today. He came to call a nation of Israel there, and he still calls this whole world today, and every person in it, to account. This is God's promised king coming to this world to come and bring an epic salvation to this people and also to bring judgment to those who have rejected him as king. And actually in Mark, if you've been reading the whole of Mark's gospel and been with us during our series in Mark, that's what we should expect. Because remember how Mark began, again, with those quotes from Malachi and from Isaiah. Just like in Zechariah, God is promising that this king will come to save and to judge, to rescue his people and to destroy his enemies. Our education system, it teaches that when it comes to the things of God, a mature attitude to life and to learning is to find and celebrate the similarities rather than the differences. And our culture says that when it comes to the things of God, you choose who you want to follow and who you want to be in charge. I wonder what King Jesus would make of that kind of statement. I think in this passage he wants to show that he is different to everyone else who claims authority. He wants to show that he really does have no equal. I think recognising that, he would say, is the mature attitude to life. Jesus' point here is that when it comes to his authority and his rule, there is no one throughout all of human history in all religious belief or philosophy who is in any way similar to him. So do we think that he's just our king in our little lives, in our little church here this morning, as if we've kind of chosen him, and so he's kind of king in our little circles? Or do we think of Jesus as he really is, as God's global forever king, with authority over every single person who has ever lived? If we've understood Jesus' claim in this passage that he isn't asking for people's votes to try and get into power, but that he is king and already in charge, then we'll see that as king, he makes us take sides, either to stand with him or to stand against him. And it's 
And I think it's only when we get this, when we see Jesus for who he really is as God's global king, that we'll really understand and get the sense of mission and evangelism. Any sense of this whole world belongs to Jesus. Whether that's mission here, in our lives, and our doorsteps, or around the world, Jesus is king, God's global king, and he calls people to come to him. And so may I ask you this morning, where do you stand? We've seen that Jesus is not asking for anyone's votes, but as king, he makes everyone take sides. Where are you standing this morning? Are you standing on the side of Jesus? And will you, will you be part of his epic salvation? Or are you standing against him? And will you fall under his judgment? And the thing is, you can't just sit on the fence. You can't just sit on the fence and just wait until you're ready. Jesus is calling you now to take sides. And so the question is, where do you stand? Whose side are you on? Are you with Jesus or are you against Jesus? Jesus is God's global forever king. And he calls you and I today to come and bow the knee.